0: Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. is Democracy Now! We're going to make sure you get every single dollar promised. I'm determined to help Puerto
1: Rico build faster than in the past and stronger and better prepared for the future.
0: President Biden visited Puerto Rico Monday, where Hurricane Fiona collapsed the island's electrical grid. Today, he's in Florida meeting with survivors of Hurricane Ian, who face a long recovery that could leave many unhoused. We'll speak with Florida State Representative Michelle Rayner. She's helping with relief efforts in the hardest hit neighborhoods. We'll also go to San Juan. Then, mass protests in Haiti enter their seventh week to demand the resignation of the U.S.-backed prime minister and condemn rising fuel
2: prices. Since there are blockades in the country,
0: we came here to buy water. If it was not for these places, we would die from thirst. We'll go to Port-au-Prince, then back to the United States. The seditious conspiracy trial begins for Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and four other members of the far-right group.
3: Already in the first couple of days, uh, it was revealed that Rhodes and other members of the organization began almost immediately after the election to get organized in order to try to prevent the transition of power and to uh, uh, try to prevent the certification of the uh, election results.
0: All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is claiming Ukraine's military's recaptured areas in the Kherson, Kharkiv, Luhansk, and Donetsk region as Ukraine continues to mount a large counteroffensive, including in areas that Russia claimed to have annexed. This comes as the United States has announced a new $625 million military aid package for Ukraine, including four more HIMARS rocket launchers. Russia's ambassador to the United States denounced the U.S. military aid, saying Moscow perceives it as a, quote, immediate threat to the strategic interests of our country, unquote. Meanwhile, a number of top Ukrainian officials have criticized the world's richest man, Elon Musk, for floating a plan to end the war. In a widely read Twitter post, Musk proposed for Crimea to become formally part of Russia, for Ukraine to remain a neutral country, and for the U.N. to supervise a redo of elections in areas annexed by Russia. Musk posted his plan a day after Pope Francis issued his strongest call yet for Russia and Ukraine to find a way to end the war.
4: My appeal goes above all to the President of the Russian Federation, begging him to stop this spiral of violence and death, even out of love for his own people. On the other side, pained by the enormous suffering of the Ukrainian population following the aggression it suffered, I addressed an equally hopeful appeal to the president of Ukraine to be open to a serious peace proposal.
0: That was Pope Francis Sunday. On Tuesday, the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky signed a decree ruling out any talks with Russian president Vladimir Putin. The U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments Tuesday in a case that could lead to the further gutting of the Voting Rights Act. Some legal analysts say it appears the conservative majority may vote to uphold Alabama's racially gerrymandered congressional map while rejecting some of the state's broader legal claims. Alabama's defended its new congressional map, describing it as race neutral. But critics say it was designed to dilute the power of black voters. During oral arguments, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the court's first black female justice, questioned Alabama's claims and said the framers of the 14th Amendment did not intend it to be race neutral or race blind. The entire
2: point of the amendment was to secure rights of the freed former slaves. The legislator who introduced that amendment said that, quote, unless the Constitution should restrain them, those states will all, I fear, keep up this discrimination and crush to death the hated freedmen. That's not, um, that's not a race neutral or race blind idea in terms of the remedy.
0: After oral arguments, NAACP Legal Defense Fund attorney Duo Ross spoke outside the court. He's the attorney for the lead plaintiff in the Alabama case, Evan Milligan.
1: It wouldn't
5: only gut Section 2, but it would essentially say that any time a state or uh, plaintiffs here who are simply drawing example plans uh, use race or think about race, that that in and of itself is unconstitutional. And so what you would end up with is a lot fewer majority minority districts and even a lot fewer districts where minority voters can join with white voters and elect candidates who are responsive to their needs.
0: In more legal news, former President Donald Trump's filed an emergency request asking the Supreme Court to intervene in the dispute over classified government documents that the FBI sees from his Florida resort, Mar-a-Lago. Trump's asked the justices to block a lower court's ruling, which allowed the Justice Department to resume its use of records marked as classified. News on the January 6th insurrection, the seditious conspiracy trial of Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and four other members of the far-right group is continuing. On Tuesday, prosecutors played for the jury an audio recording of a meeting held by the Oath Keepers after the 2020 election, where Rhodes talked about bringing weapons to Washington, D.C., to help Donald Trump stay in power. In the recording, Rhodes is heard saying, quote, we're not getting out of this without a fight. There's going to be a fight. Rhodes also talked about keeping some members of the group outside the city who could provide backup support. He's heard saying, quote, I do want some Oath Keepers to stay on the outside and to stay fully armed and to prepare to go in if they have to. During our opening arguments, Assistant U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Nessler said, quote, their goal was to stop by whatever means necessary the lawful transfer of presidential power, including by taking up arms against the United States government. They concocted a plan for armed rebellion to shatter a bedrock of American democracy, he said. We'll have more on The Oath Keepers later in the broadcast. President Biden's heading to Florida today to see areas devastated by Hurricane Ian. The death toll from the storm continues to rise. So far, 109 are believed to have been killed, and authorities are concerned the storm could lead to a spike in homelessness in Florida, as many residents, including those living in mobile homes, lost everything in the storm. We'll have more on the hurricane in Florida and Puerto Rico after headlines. In labor news, Amazon has suspended 50 workers who refused to go back to work after a fire broke out inside a warehouse in Staten Island, New York. Workers said it was not safe to go back due to smoke and flooding. The suspensions occurred at the only unionized Amazon warehouse in the United States. This comes as the Amazon labor unions calling on the company to stop stalling and start negotiating with the union. The New York Times has confirmed the identity of a woman who played a key role in recruiting and tricking a group of 48 Venezuelan asylum seekers in Texas to board a plane to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts as part of a political ploy by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The Times identified the woman as Perla Huerta. She's a former combat medic and counterintelligence agent who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. She was discharged by the Army in August. The group lawyers for civil rights has filed a class action civil rights lawsuit against Huerta, DeSantis, and others involved in the scheme. A fire broke out today at a South Korean airbase after a South Korean missile malfunctioned and crashed during a live fire drill with the United States. The incident occurred as tension is escalating in the region. On Tuesday, North Korea fired a ballistic missile over Japan for the first time in five years. In the Philippines, a veteran 63-year-old broadcaster was shot dead near his home in suburban Manila on Tuesday. Percival Mabasa, who was also known as Percy Lapid, was a prominent critic of President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. and his predecessor, Rodrigo Duterte. He's the second Filipino journalist to have been murdered since Marcos took office on June 30th. A six-month ceasefire deal in Yemen has expired. The United Nations is calling for an extension to the truce, but the U.S.-backed Saudi-led coalition and the Houthis have yet to support the deal. The U.N. special envoy for Yemen, Hans Grunberg, urged both sides to avoid a new round of fighting.
3: I would urge all sides to exercise maximum restraint at this particularly sensitive period of time. Because at this moment of time, if uh, any small incident could spark something that could have devastating consequences...
0: A group of 30 Palestinian prisoners held by Israel are now in their second week of an open-ended hunger strike to protest administrative detention, the Israeli policy of holding Palestinians without charge for up to years at a time. The hunger strikers include the French-Palestinian human rights lawyer Salah Hamouri, who has been held without charge for six months based on secret evidence. In Ecuador. At least 15 people died Monday in the latest outbreak of violence inside Ecuador's overcrowded prison system. On Tuesday, relatives gathered outside the prison in Latacunga trying to find out if their loved ones were still alive. At least 316 people were killed last year inside Ecuador's prison system, which is more than 11 percent over capacity. And here in the United States in Georgia, the son of Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker has publicly denounced his father in a series of social media posts that could shake up one of the most closely watched Senate races. Herschel Walker, who's a former football star, is in a tight race with Democratic Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock. The 23-year-old Christian Walker accused his father of threatening to kill his family and of running his campaign on a series of lies. Christian Walker spoke out shortly after the The Daily Beast reported Herschel Walker had paid for a girlfriend's abortion in 2009. The anti-abortion Republican has denied the report, despite the existence of physical evidence, including a copy of a check from Walker and a receipt from an abortion clinic. On Tuesday, Christian Walker said he could no longer stay silent about his father's actions.
3: I stayed silent as the atrocities committed against my mom were downplayed. I stayed silent when it came out that my father, Herschel Walker had all these random kids across the country, none of whom he raised. And you know, my favorite issue to talk about is father absence surprise. Cause it affected me. That's why I talk about it all the time. Cause it affected me. Family values people. He has four kids, four different women. Wasn't in the house raising one of them. He was out having sex with other women. Do you care about family values? I was silent, lie after lie after lie. The abortion card drops yesterday. It's literally his handwriting in the car. They say they have receipts, whatever. He gets on Twitter.
0: He lies about it. Okay, I'm done. Done. Everything has been a lie. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now! democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! Co host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan.
1: Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world.
0: Well, President Biden's visiting survivors of Hurricane Ian in Florida today, surveying damage from the Category 4 storm that devastated part of Florida's Gulf Coast. The hurricane's death toll has topped 109, with 105 of those deaths in Florida, making it the state's deadliest hurricane in decades. Search and rescue crews are warning they're likely to uncover more bodies in the coming days. At least 55 of the deaths were in Florida's Lee County. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis dismissed questions During a news conference Monday, about why officials there didn't mandate evacuations until the day before the storm hit.
4: Go ahead, ma'am. Go ahead, ma'am. Okay, okay, okay. Stop. 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 Okay. It's been this has been dealt with. The Lee County has explained what they did. They went through that. Um, Well, of course you're going to review everything we do in these storms. I mean, that's the way it works.
0: DeSantis meets with President Biden today, as many residents face a long recovery amidst a housing crisis that could leave many unhoused, especially those on low or fixed incomes. For more, we go to St. Petersburg, Florida, to speak with Democratic State Representative Michelle Rayner. She's been on the ground helping with relief efforts in the hardest-hit neighborhoods in Fort Myers, which is in Lee County, including Harlem Heights and Dunbar. Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, Representative Michelle Rayner. Um, if you You can talk about this whole story, you know, the attack on the officials for not calling for evacuation earlier, but the whole issue of who gets hit hardest, who is it hardest, um, who is it hardest to evacuate, for example, the poor, people who don't have access to vehicles, etc., and then what happens after the storm, who is affected most. Give us a lay of the land.
2: Well, Amy and Juan, it's so good to be with you. Uh, This is low-key a dream come true. So uh, I, I love Democracy Now! and the work that you do. But to the question at hand, so I have been Black in America, Black in Florida for 41 years, a young 41, but for 41 years. So I have family in Fort Myers, in the Dunbar area, and in Harlem Heights. So, one, when we're thinking about evacuating, there is a privilege in being able to evacuate. Not everyone has the means or the ability to be able to evacuate. And so, that's number one. So, we're putting that there. Also, you know, as we are kind of gauging and looking at the response of Lee County, We knew that there was a hurricane coming, but initially they thought it was going to hit my home, my district, and it turned. So once again, telling folks to evacuate, especially in Harlem Heights and in Dunbar, there's a privilege that's there. But secondly, after we are in this post-hurricane response, the concerning matter is, who is getting what type of relief. And I think that, you know, as I've been making calls about this, this, there has to be an intentional focus on our working families on our farm workers. There's a large, um, uh, population of farm workers, uh, down in uh, Southwest Florida. Also, you know, parts of these communities, you know, quarter of Dunbar lives under, uh, the federal poverty line. And so, but, we knew that there was going to be a disparity or an inequitable response because of what's been going on pre-hurricane Ian.
1: And representative, could you uh, talk, talk about the the housing crunch that exists in Florida already before the the hurricane in terms of affordable housing? Uh, reports of huge skyrocketing of rent in in uh, many parts of Florida. What? How do you see the? Uh, The the numbers of people now that are now homeless, how the state is going to be able to marshal uh, and the federal government resources to be able to assist those who have no homes.
2: I mean, Juan, you know, quite frankly, Floridians can't afford uh, Florida. And so we have a housing crisis, as you stated. Uh, there are ways to fix this housing crisis, but a Republican-led leader, uh, leadership uh, in the governor's mansion and in the legislature have chosen not to. Uh, we attempted to address a uh, property insurance crisis that we have. Uh, that was not addressed. It was actually, you know, helped and aided the insurance companies. So when you're thinking About folks who are working families and folks who are trying to make sure they can rebuild their lives. Number one, is their housing going to be, you know, the same or better as what they lost? Number two, are they going to be able to afford said housing? Number three, is the are the insurance companies, are they actually going to be, uh, you know, be ethical in their dealings with the people on the ground. So we already see that we have a crisis in our housing market. We have a crisis in our rental market. We have a crisis in our property insurance market. And this storm has now exacerbated the crisis that we're at and we're at catastrophic levels. My hope is, is that FEMA will come in it will immediately start working with the most marginalized communities uh, and have an intentional focus on making sure that they can recover.
1: and I wanted to ask you about uh, governor uh, your governor and his stance on issues such as a uh, uh, climate change uh, if I'm not mistaken back uh, during super uh, in the aftermath of superstorm uh, Sandy, uh, he opposed a uh, of, of federal aid to New Jersey and New York uh, by by the federal government after that catastrophe. Uh, now he's being forced to basically ask Washington for assistance, isn't he?
2: yeah and so um you know the the governor uh he's he and other members of his party speak out of both sides of their mouth you know uh we saw members of uh the republican delegation of congressional delegation of florida vote against uh their own interest and their own constituents uh just this week about supplying aid to florida so you know they're more concerned about sticking it to joe biden than actually making sure that they can take care of their people and right now, you know, uh, DeSantis finds himself in that position, you know, he's trying to figure out a way to keep sticking it to Joe Biden by simultaneously having his hand out and both can't be true. You can't do, you can't do both of them. And once again, you know, this is why I've been saying, you know, we are public servants when we are elected, we are public servants, but there are some folks who are more concerned about being public than they are concerned about being a servant.
0: Let me ask you still on uh, Governor DeSantis, but another issue, and that's the issue of migrants. We all know about what he did spending uh, government money to uh, fly Venezuelan asylum seekers from Texas to Florida up to Martha's Vineyard. Now there are a number of immigrants in migrants, asylum seekers in New York, who have been shown flyers that there's paid work in Florida. They're headed back down. Uh, The New York Post is reporting reporting this. What do you say to them, Uh, Representative Michelle Rayner? They're being told they'll get money if they go to Florida.
2: I don't know what to say, Amy. Um, One, uh, it's heartbreaking uh, that basically our governor kidnapped them. I mean, like, let's just level set and call this thing what it is. And under false pretenses, you know, I, I'm a criminal defense attorney, uh, and by any other standard, you know, he would be facing prosecution for what he did. So that's number one. Number two, um, you know, while I understand that folks need to work, they are trying to make sure that they can stay here in the United States because uh, the conditions from where they are from are so dangerous. I don't, I guess we're here now. I don't know if Florida is the best place for them. Um, because we have a governor that has proven to be dangerous to people who do not look like him, to people who do not love like him, to people who are not of the same party and the people who don't have the same wealth income that he has. And so, you know, while, you know, I, as anyone would welcome folks and say, please come, please work uh, you know, please help us. You know, and also be able to have money to send back to your families. Florida is tends to be a little bit dangerous for folks who uh, don't align with Ron DeSantis.
0: Uh, Let me ask you quickly, uh, Representative Michelle Rayner, you're the first black openly LGBTQ woman in the Florida legislature. Next, uh, October 11th, next week, is National Coming Out Day. You're planning to lead a town hall meeting in the aftermath of the passage um, HB 1557, Don't Say Gay Bill. Can you talk about the impact it's had, and are people continuing their activism around this? The midst of this storm? You know,
2: um, Amy, it has had significant impact. It has had significant impact on teachers. Um, There have been teachers who have quit uh, uh, the education uh, profession. We have had folks who. are nervous of what they can say to parents. One school district uh, right above my county, they had teachers take off the safe space stickers. You have parents who are concerned about their children's safety. You have students who are reporting uh, an uptick in bullying um, due to them being a member of the LGBTQ community. And people are most certainly continuing their advocacy uh, around this work because here's what we know to be true. If this legislature stays the same makeup, if Ron DeSantis uh, wins a second term in the governor's mansion, that these type of bills aren't just going to stop at don't say gay. We're going to see bills that we have seen in Texas, you know, criminalizing parents for trying to allow their children to have gender affirming care and pushing the limit of what can be done. So we know that right now with don't say gay, we have to continue sounding the alarm knowing that this is a slippery slope as to what can happen not only uh, towards LGBTQ youth, um, but also black and brown folks, working people and working families.
0: Well, Representative Michelle Rayner, thank you so much for being with us. Democratic Florida State Representative. After Hurricane Ian, Representative Rayner has been on the ground in the hardest-hit neighborhoods in Fort Myers, including Harlem Heights, Dunbar, helping with the relief efforts. And a shout-out to the community radio station WMNF, um, who we turned to as the storm was hitting, serving the community in Tampa and St. Petersburg. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan González. President Biden's visit to Florida today comes after he visited Puerto Rico Monday, two weeks after Hurricane Fiona collapsed the island's electrical grid with high winds, storm surge and heavy flooding. Biden pledged disaster relief as he spoke from the ports of Ponce on Puerto Rico's southern coast, which faced significant storm damage.
1: We're going to make sure you get every single dollar promised. And I'm determined to help Puerto Rico build faster than in the past and stronger and better prepared for the future. We know that the climate crisis and more extreme weather are going to continue to hit this island and hit the United States overall. And as we rebuild, we have to ensure that we build it to last. We're particularly focused on the power grid.
0: Again, President Biden was speaking in Ponce, where Juan Gonzalez was born. Well, Biden's trip to Puerto Rico comes five years to the day after then-President Donald Trump tossed paper towels to survivors of Hurricane Maria when he visited Puerto Rico after the Category 5 storm plunged much of the island into darkness for nearly a year. For more, we're going to San Juan to speak with Carla Manette, the executive director of the Center for Investigative Journalism in Puerto Rico. Carla, welcome back to Democracy Now! Uh, Explain the extent of the damage. This is now two weeks after. I mean, clearly, Biden could not go to Florida without going to Puerto Rico, which is still bearing the brunt of the previous storm?
6: Yes. Um, Well, it was extensive damage, uh, particularly because of the floodings in the south part of the island and because of the uh, huge problems that we've been having with the electrical grid that uh, have clearly not been addressed since Hurricane Maria Uh, actually The official number from the government is that uh, 10 percent of uh, 20 percent of the population is still having problems with electricity. But uh, lots of uh, people are and communities are uh, saying that uh, they are not getting uh, power back. So um, there's no clear account about that uh, number right now.
1: And and Carla I wanted to ask you when uh when this hurricane hit Puerto Rico it was just a category 1 storm not uh, mm-hmm. uh with the power of a, of Maria or Irma or some of these others uh, uh how is it possible that the entire grid once again of the island uh, uh went down and what's been the role of the private company that that the the, uh, the U.S. government forced Puerto Rico to take on uh, in in replacing the publicly owned utility that existed back in the days of uh, before Maria?
6: Yes, basically the the electric grid has not been uh, repaired. Um, basically, less than three uh, percent of the. Uh, Infrastructure money that was awarded after Hurricane Maria has been used for for infrastructure five years after Maria. Uh, the process of privatization of the um, generation part of the electricity company uh, has been a huge uh, problem. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, 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 problems that have arisen from that transition and uh, this company, Luma Energy, um, has been uh, uh, has been reported that has a lot of uh, conflicts of interest in Puerto Rico, hiring its own um, partners uh, for different tasks that are being uh, are supposed to repair the, the grid and are not being done correctly. Um, so I guess the there, there was a perfect storm in, in terms of the electric grid. No money uh, from Maria has been used. A new privatization company who's not from Puerto Rico and doesn't have the amount of employees it needs uh, to respond to an emergency like this one. Uh, they don't even know the, the ground here in Puerto Rico. So all those things together... Uh, are a big problem, especially for um, people in the rural areas and for electricity-dependent population, people who need um, medical machines uh, to leave, uh, which is a big population in Puerto Rico.
1: And I wanted to ask you, it's been now um, six years since a financial control board was imposed by Congress on Puerto Rico and has always made all of these predictions about how the uh, the economy of the island and the government budget will be fixed. But uh, Valerie Juresko, who was the, uh, uh, for most of this time, the CEO of the control board, the, the, she's the Ukrainian-American who, Actually, came to Puerto Rico after being the finance minister. People forget this in the Ukraine uh, uh, after the uh, Maidan Revolution, she took over the finances of Ukraine, and then she came to uh, to Puerto Rico. She resigned in April. What had there been any change in the, in the policies of the Promesa board since Juresco left?
6: None that uh, I've, I've, I've learned from um since uh, Natalie Yaresco went. No no um no appointment has been made, there's no list of people that have been public uh been considered for the position. And um no the fiscal control board has kept his uh its austerity policies uh from then on. And, um, also is lack of transparency, uh, policies. As a matter of fact, yesterday, um, U.S. Supreme Court, uh, is, uh, you know, uh, said that they would take a case that we are, um, in which we are, CPI is asking for public documents from six years ago and um they they uh they got the certiorari so they are going to hear the case uh in the next month to see if the control board has to deliver the documents that they have exchanged with the government of Puerto Rico which is what we have been asking for so their transparency policy is in the same in the same place
0: well, Carla Minette, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Executive Director of the Center for Investigative Journalism in Puerto Rico, speaking to us from San Juan. Next up, mass protests in Haiti approach their uh, third month, demanding the resignation of the U.S. backed prime minister, condemning rising fuel prices. We'll go to Port-au-Prince. Stay with us. <laughs>
5: Papa, oh, 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 si oh, 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 oh,
0: Oguo, by the Haitian music collective La Coupe Musique and Joseph Ray. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan González-Mass. Protests in Haiti have entered their third month to demand the resignation of the U.S.-backed Prime Minister Ariel Henry and to condemn rising fuel prices. Police fired tear gas Monday at thousands of protesters marching in the streets of the capital, Port-au-Prince.
4: The conditions are unemployment, hunger, misery, and corruption are blatant in our society. If the Prime Minister solves insecurity and hunger, if he manages to solve the gang problems in the country, if he can manage the crisis, there will be no problem with restarting classes. If he has no answer to these questions, he must leave power and hand it to the right person.
0: One of Haiti's most powerful gangs has blockaded a key fuel depot since September 12. Many gas stations are closed. The gas shortage has shut down public transit, closed some hospitals. This comes as Haitian authorities have announced eight people have died from cholera, the first cholera deaths in Haiti in three years. A cholera outbreak a decade ago killed over 10,000 people in Haiti. For more, we go to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, to speak with Elina Elysee-Charlier, a Haitian activist and a member of the New Pap Domi Collective. That uh, means we are watching or we never sleep. Belina, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Can you talk about what's happening on the ground? You've described it as a civil war.
7: Um, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to be talking about what's happening in Haiti. At the moment, yes, just like I said, it's uh, very similar to a war situation in Haiti. The the country, Port prince the capital, many other major cities and even small villages are on complete lockdown. The people
0: Um, We are seeing if we, uh, whoops, we're going to um, try to get her back. We're talking to Belina Elize-Charlier. The situation in Haiti is an absolute crisis. Belina, continue with what you were saying.
7: Yes, um, and one of the reasons why I'm breaking off is because of that. We are in fuel shortage for the past um, three weeks and even longer than that. It's been three years since um, fuel has been challenging in Haiti. Uh, every three months, you go t- into a shortage, but that shortage is one of the worst that we have seen. It's close to a month now where access to fuel is almost impossible. It gets to the point that um, companies, at least one major company that produces and distributes and sells clean water, had to stop their operations. Um, cell phone companies have announced that they no longer can bring fuel to their cell sites, hence the poor internet connection. Um, we have the cholera outbreak. So areas who already had no to zero
0: or to very. Juan, if you could um, ask the next question, I think Velina can hear you and then we'll only go to audio. I think she's back. Yeah.
1: Yes, Velina, I w- wanted to ask you. You back. you. You've said that uh, Haiti has become a gangster state. Uh, Could you elaborate on that? These gangs that have uh, developed, uh, and especially in recent years, do they reflect uh, internal battles among the elite of of Haiti? Or uh, what is the, the source and the funding of these gangs?
7: Haiti became a gangster state, an unlivable place, like I said. The gangs that we are seeing, they are very close to the power. The government uses the gangs to control the population, to terrorize the population, and try to kill any um, will that the population would have to protest against what's happening. They also use the gangs so that they can change the narrative. For example, they are asking...
0: You know, as we fix the audio, um, with, uh, Velina, it's just too important to let her go at this point. Let's go to another protester in the streets of Port-au-Prince. I am on the streets for
3: four reasons. First, we are here because of the misery, because of the hunger we endure. Second, Ariel Henry has no dignity. He cannot rule the country. Third, we are in charge of the streets. It is up to us to decide when classes can begin again. Ariel does not have the dignity to open the schools. We will open the schools and Ariel must leave.
0: Uh, That uh, is a protester in the streets. Uh, Velina, if you could continue with what you were saying and also talk about the prime minister, (laughs) U.S.-backed prime minister, who was implicated, I believe, in the assassination of the previous prime minister, uh, Jovenel Moïse, what, just over a year ago?
7: Yeah, um, I'm continuing by saying that the gangs that we are seeing, there is the G9 gang coalition, it was made possible with the help of one of the government authorities who was supposed to...
0: Belina, if you could start again. Again, we've lost you. We'll give this one more try. It's really difficult. Start again with what you're saying. Yeah. um So there's the gang coalition and the, the gangs
7: are used by the by the power so that they can control the people. It's really their way of governance. It is similar to what we would call state terrorism. This is what we're going through in Haiti. And still, the the United States of America give full support to Prime Minister Oyelongi. None of the ministers have resigned, and none of the international community, including the U.S., have said that they will stop working with Oyelongi. They continue business as usual, as if everything was perfect um, in Haiti. And we believe that if there wasn't United States, Hand on the scale giving support to OELRE, we, we in the civil society would have been able to continue with the dialogue and implement that Haitian led solution that we have been asked to.
0: Looks like we get you 30 seconds at a time. A one next question.
1: Yeah, Valina, I wanted to ask you about the role of the United Nations uh, and uh, the there was. This whole issue of thousands of tons of food that was reportedly lost following repeated attacks on warehouses of the U.N. food program.
7: Well, you know, in Haiti, we do not have uh, the population does not have a good relationship with um, the U.N. When you say UN in Haiti, the first thing that comes to mind is the cholera. The cholera outbreak, um, close to 10,000 people who died, even more than that maybe, um, from the cholera and all of the battle that had followed that. First, it was a battle for them to be, recognize that they were the ones who brought cholera in Haiti. And then we had to fight for the mere excuse. And up to today, we haven't seen any any uh, um, trial, any process and any justice brought to the victims of the cholera. And additional to that, the U.N. also has a reputation of raping women and girls and raping.
0: Valina was just talking about the cholera outbreak um, that uh, last Several years ago, after Maria uh, was brought in by the UN peacekeepers, sadly, um, uh, and 10,000 Haitians died. Your final point, Valina, as we lose you every couple seconds. Well, my
7: final point is that one. Haiti is about to be cut off from the world. if Nothing is done. We are in a warlike situation. Haitians are dying. It is very urgent that the world knows that Haitians are dying and it's state terrorism that we're seeing in Haiti. There is a mafia that is ruling this country and that mafia doesn't want to face justice. It's complete impunity. And they'd rather kill us instead of letting us know, letting the world know that it is a mafia running this country.
0: Elena elize Charlier, want to thank you for being with us, Haitian activist, member of the New Pap Domi Collective. We never sleep. We're always watching, speaking to us from Port-au-Prince. Uh, we hope to get her on in the coming weeks on a less troubled line in these troubled times. Next up, back in the U.S., the seditious conspiracy trial for Oathkeepers Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and four others we will get an update. Stay with us.
5: We were poor, but we had love. That's the one thing that daddy made sure of. He shoveled coal to make a poor man.
0: daughter by the pioneering country music star Loretta Lynn. She died Tuesday at the age of 90 at her home in Tennessee. Yes, she was a coal miner's daughter. Her father died of black lung. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan González. As we turn to the seditious conspiracy trial of the Oath Keepers founder, Stuart Rhodes, and four other members of the far-right group underway in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, prosecutors played for the jury an audio recording of a meeting held by the Oath Keepers after the 2020 election, where Rhodes talked about bringing weapons to Washington, D.C., to help Donald Trump stay in power. In the recording, Rhodes is heard saying, we're not getting out of this without a fight. There's going to be a fight. Rhodes also talked about keeping some members of the group outside the city who could provide backup support. He's heard saying, quote, I do want some Oath Keepers to stay on the outside and to stay fully armed and prepared to go in if they have to. During opening arguments, Assistant U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Nessler said, quote, their goal was to stop by whatever means necessary, the lawful transfer of presidential power, including by taking up arms against the United States government. They concocted a plan for armed rebellion to shatter a bedrock of American democracy. For more, we're joined by Arie Pellier, a professor and director of security studies at the University of Massachusetts, Lowell, author of the book American Zealots Inside Right-Wing Domestic Terrorism. Welcome to Democracy Now! Professor, if you can start off by talking about the significance of this seditious conspiracy trial of the Oath Keepers.
3: Good morning, and thank you for inviting me. So I think, I think one of the major objectives of this trial is really to expose those uh, militant organizations and groups and movements that are really trying to undermine American democracy. And I think the trials provide in detail a lot of specifics about how they try to mobilize support, how they try to gather resources, how they were trying really to engage in actual plans to disrupt the transfer uh, of power. And we're talking about substantial groups, and one of the more concerning uh, characteristics of those groups is their ability to uh, recruit substantial numbers of uh, military personnel, active duty, former veterans, and as well as members of law enforcement.
1: And, uh, Professor Perliger, I'm wondering if you could talk about how the Oath Keepers are distinct from the other uh, either white supremacist or right-wing nationalist groups uh, that have arisen. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about their history and, and what makes them distinctive and particularly uh, dangerous?
3: I think what's really distinguished the Oath Keepers from other movements is they're focusing on the recruitment of law enforcement and military uh, personnel. This is provide them unique advantages. First of all, it provides them a more legitimacy in the eyes of the general public. It allows them to present themselves as a actual patriotic parts of a, of the American public, and also to gain a lot of legitimacy from the public because they basically arguing that they representing people who actually a, a sacrifice for the nation, for the country, people who actually risk their lives for the nation. So that's one element, the, the fact that that allows them to gain a lot of legitimacy and a lot of public support. The second advantage that this provides them is the access to operational knowledge, access to uh, individuals who are, have experience in the exercise of violence, that have experience in military operations. So it provides them both very strong legitimacy as well as access to a lot of operational and logistical resources that many of the other groups do not have. And this is something that really characterized the Oath Keepers since their uh, foundations in 2008-9, when they really focused on the recruitment of individuals from law enforcement and the military. And I'll just say that in the initial phases of the organization, they really represent themselves as more as a a, a benevolent, patriotic organization that is mainly focusing on protecting constitutional rights rather than some kind of a conspiratorial uh, anti-government organization. Throughout the years, and especially after the election of President uh, Trump, we see this ongoing gradual adoptions of conspiracy theory, of more militant and extremist uh, uh, views and narratives, as well as a more significant collaboration with under, uh, organizations and groups on the far right.
0: I want to ask you about the leader, Stuart Rhodes, trained at Yale, speaking on conspiracy theorist Alex Jones Show. This is back November 10th, 2020, just after the election, almost two months before January 6th.
2: We have men already stationed outside D.C. as a nuclear option. And in case they attempt to remove the president illegally, we will step in and stop it. So I've got good men on the ground already. We've been doing a leader's recon there last week, and we're uh, sorting out what we're going to be staging. And we'll be there. We'll be inside D.C. We'll also be on the outside of D.C. armed, prepared to go in if the president calls sure, us up.
0: So that's Stuart Rhodes. Um, Arya, if you can tell us more about him, um, the man who founded the Oath Keepers, uh, where he's standing in this seditious conspiracy trial. Um, He founded the group uh, after Biden's election. Uh, He wrote in an encrypted message, we aren't getting through this without a civil war.
3: Yeah, I I think it's really important to understand why Uh, It's so crucial for them, basically, to maintain uh, Trump at the center of the political uh, landscape. Why they were so uh, uh, insistent on on, on keeping Trump in power. Uh, President Trump provided them access to the mainstream political discourse, right? A lot of their sentiments, a lot of their ideological views, a lot of their ideas finally were able to penetrate the mainstream political discourse through Trump and his administration. So in many ways they saw Trump as a platform, as a as a as a tool that allowed them basically to gain access to into the government, into the mainstream political discourse and to enhance their legitimacy. You know, for years they were basically kept out. But you know, when Trump was elected, finally they were able really to gain access to a much larger audience, much larger public. And to gain a, a support from some elements within within the government. So for them, losing this was something that they were not even willing to, to consider. For them, that was a disastrous situation of losing this kind of access. And for them also, it was very clear that, at least they believe, that they have significant support, significant constituency that will support them in their efforts to uh, prevent the certification of the election results. I will just say that, Anyone who was listening to the discourse, to the language, to the vocabulary of those groups prior to January 6th knew that this is something that will, is very likely to happen. You know, I think one of the major failures of January 6th is the fact that they were talked very openly about their intention to use actual violence and, and, and resistance in order to prevent the transition of power. So there was no real surprise if you just listen to the, to the discourse of those groups.
1: And could you talk about the relationship between the oath keepers, if any, and other right wing extremist groups, whether that's skinheads or uh, the KKK or the militias or three percenters or the pro life extremists? You've documented thousands of incidents of actual uh, violence or terrorism over the past few years by these groups in the United States. I think the. The overlap
3: we see much more significantly in the last few years. You know, if we can talk about the United Rally event in Charlottesville in twenty seventeen, we can talk about January sixth. I think because of the of all because all those groups really understood the benefits of keeping Trump in power, I think they really coalesce and willing to collaborate more, at least on the logistical and organizational level, in engaging in in mutual initiatives and mutual events. There is also, we have to be honest, with, there is a spillover of a lot of the rhetoric of of, uh, uh, of white supremacy groups into what we define as the anti-government groups, such as the Three Percenters, such as the Boogaloo movement, such as the Oath Keepers. So we definitely see very strong nativist, uh, sometimes racist, uh, uh, definitely uh, this kind this kind of language and vocabulary that's that penetrate and becoming more and more. Uh, presence in the language of uh, uh, those anti-government groups that initially were very careful not to be perceived as part of the white supremacy movement. But eventually, and especially in the last few years, we do see this growing overlap. I won't say that they are the same, but there's definitely overlap, both in terms of their membership as well as in terms of their language.
0: I want to ask you about Oathkeeper Thomas Caldwell, also on trial, retired U.S. Navy intelligence officer from Virginia. When authorities searched his home, they found he kept a death list that included the name of a Georgia election official and their family member. Yet Caldwell has denied any violent intentions. This is Fox News' Tucker Carlson interviewing Thomas Caldwell.
3: So this indictment, so you're pushing 70 or 100 percent military disabled. You spent a career in the Navy. This indictment paints you as the leader of a crack commando unit trying to stage a sort of D-Day invasion on the banks of the Potomac with what they describe as as heavy weapons. Were you planning what kind of heavy weapons do you think that refers to? Were you planning to do that?
2: I have no idea, and no, I was not, Tucker. Look, I was a Navy guy, okay? Now, Navy guys do know about water, but it's like aircraft carriers, uh, you know, we're talking about blue water Navy here. So this other stuff, I don't know anything about, didn't have any role in planning any of it. It's just more
0: hooey. So that's Thomas Caldwell. He, along with Kenneth Harrelson, Jessica Watkins, Kelly Meggs, and Stuart Rhodes are on trial for seditious conspiracy. Um, If you can respond to what he says, his connection to the military um, and other oath keepers, and how connected to police and military they are.
3: (laughs) So— It's difficult to say. We do know that the Oath Keepers had significant penetrations into uh, police organizations, uh, police uh, agencies, law enforcement agencies. Uh, It's very difficult. And now there's multiple efforts to do more research and to collect more data about this. I'll just say in terms of the specific effort and attempt to engage in assassination of political figures, this is really something which is fairly new and really concerning if you're looking at the, at, the, at the new tactics adopted by far-right groups. The far-right, in general, for most of the time was not aiming uh, to assassinate or to focus on specific political figures. Uh, killing political leaders was never really part of their arsenal of tactics. But this is something that dramatically changed in the last four or five years. We've seen that in the exposures of the plots to uh, kidnap and assassinate uh, Michigan's uh, governor, uh, Gretchen Whitmer. We see that in some other cases. Uh, it seems that the increasing personal nature or uh, of our political discourse really drives more and more groups on the far right to focus on specific political figures and try to target them or to try to target a uh, a, a political institutions. So we've seen that even during January 6th, a lot of the language of the protesters, of the writers of the insurrection, was focused on specific figures such as Nancy Pelosi and others. So I think this is something that we really need to look into. It this growing focus on attacking, targeting specific political leaders, and and what we see right now in the case that you just uh, presented to the audience, we see another manifestations of this growing trend of focusing on political figures.
1: Uh, rival political figures and and see them as as a legitimate targets. I wanted to ask you only have about a minute left, but uh, a lot of this has happened actually in the open, which we should be thankful for because it's easier to trace whether it's on social media or their communications through text and and and, uh, and other means. But you've expressed concern about these militias and cells and loose net net networks going underground, uh, which would make it a lot harder to. Uh, uh, to be able to uh, uh, identify them and ferret them out? Yes, I think we have a tendency to focus on the more visible
3: groups, the Oath Keepers, the three percenters. But the far right also is composed from uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of local organizations, local associations that are, uh, 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 are devoted, that are promoting uh, such ideology. And many of those groups uh, especially uh, considering the recent developments be, can become more frustrated more angry more hopeless and they may uh, resort to uh, more violent campaigns violent operations you know so I don't think we need to see January 6th as as the as a representation of future threats or future future scenarios I actually think that January 6th is something that is actually easy to counter we I think that law enforcement, the intelligence services are now are capable to prevent another January 6th, and they'll be, they'll be able to do that. The main challenge is looking at all those uh, regional, local associations that may decide to engage in their own actions and their own activities. And naturally, local law enforcement have less resources, have less, in many cases, have less access to intelligence, and those are the one who are vulnerable. So local government institutions, local politicians are... Are my main concern as if, if I'm trying to, add, to, to to sense what are how the future trends of violence will look like.
0: Ariel Perrier, we well, want to thank you very much for being with us, Professor and Director of Security Studies at University of Massachusetts Lowell, author of American Zealots: Inside Right Wing Domestic Terrorism, and that does it for our show. I'll be speaking tonight at um, Penn State Harrisburg at seven o'clock. Uh, tomorrow, October 6 I'll be speaking at Brown University at 4 o'clock. You can check our website at democracynow.org for details. We have two full-time job openings. Check the website. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.